Hey everyone, Alex here. Just jumping in at the top of the podcast to reiterate something we said last year. We love you all and we love everyone who listens to the show. But if you could introduce the Lorax or any of your favorite episodes to a friend or a family member, that'd be great. We're not chasing analytics, but the numbers help t- uh, help tell us which topics and uh, episodes are most popular so we know what to make more in the future. Also, throughout this episode, I pronounce the Ben Gesserit as the Ben Gesserit, and I apologize for that, but that's something that's been imprinted on my brain since I first read Dune when I was a young teenager. So apologies if that sounds like nails going down a chalkboard to you. Also, I recorded this episode without a pop shield, so uh, I apologize again if my P's and B's are a little bit, um, uh, well, poppy. Anyway, hope you enjoy Dune Part 3. Welcome to The Lorax, the podcast where we take your favourite sci-fi, fictional and fantasy settings and look at them a little bit too deeply through sociological, historical and philosophical lenses. It's just Alex for this episode, uh, coming in off of a long holiday period to finish our three-part series on Dune by Frank Herbert, both Dune the book and Dune the I think, three-part movie series that's going to come out over the next few years. As I said, this is part three of our three-part series. We covered why Dune is anti-sci-fi. We covered why Dune has a lot of Islamic influences and the good and the bad that that brings. And now we're going to talk about Dune's influences and themes around feminism, gender dynamics... And queerness. From the top, it's worth disclosing that I am a straight cisgendered man, and that therefore some of my interpretations and the way I've researched this uh, may be coloured by those biases. But uh, in researching this topic, I've come across uh, so, so many really interesting takes and perspectives on Dune as, the uni- as a universe from the book and the movie. And they're all going to be in the episode description. So please feel free to to have a look through. There'll also be some further reading in there if you want to do some reading about um, second wave feminism in the Dune universe and perspectives on the deconstruction of the masculine norm and things like that. But we're going to uh, jump straight into this. This episode might be a little bit shorter because obviously... I'm just talking to myself here. There's no uh, Khalil this time to to jump off of. Uh, we'll have a normal episode soon in the near future. But it's about time we finished off Dune, so we're going to talk about it. So the first thing to note is that Dune was published during the height of second wave feminism, a movement from the early 1960s and uh, early 1970s which focused more on critiquing patriarchal or male-dominated institutions and practices. Uh, Also focused on things like domestic violence, marital rape, um, whereas first-wave feminism had focused mostly on suffrage and overturning the, uh, the inherent obstacles that women faced, like voting and, and property. So... Dune came out uh, at the height of second wave feminism, um, 
And the book has the book has never really been placed among the heights of um, feminist literature, despite the fact that the book series has a number of quite prominent female characters and female organizations. And there has been something of a a reassessment of the way that Herbert is uh, approaching gender and structure and power in Dune the book, especially when you consider, as we talked about in the first episode of this series, that this was a book published in the mid-60s, written by a man, um, that sought to, in some ways, buck the trend of sci-fi at the time. However, women in... We're going to start talking about women in Dune from a 30,000-foot approach. And the thing is, the book is a series that focuses on a male protagonist and his journey. Uh, so a lot of the features of the female main characters in the book serve to drive Paul as a main character. A lot of the women are acting as either lovers or guides, but they never really take uh, center stage. They have their individual moments, obviously, but they never actually become like huge parts of the story, which is interesting in the sense that other sci-fi stories, you think of things like coming out roughly the same time, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, um, you look at Asimov, you look at uh, contemporary science fiction media that came out afterwards, Star Trek, Star Wars, Although there are women in these uh, stories, there aren't many power structures run by women. And the largest form of that in Dune is the Ben Gesseriot, who stand as a sort of opposite to the gendered political situation and the political commentary that revolves around this feudal conflict between the noble houses, most particularly the Harkonnens and the Atreides. The Ben Gesseriot are... Uh, a secret society, well, not so secret really, but a, a society of um, women diplomats, courtesans, assassins, um, military leaders who seek to shape the universe of Dune to their making um, through subterfuge, through marriage, through diplomatic um, changes in small places. They have plans that are careful and considered that happen over centuries with singular goals in mind. The main plan being, as we mentioned in episodes one and two, the creation of the Kwisatz Haderach, the um, the prophet for whom they have been seeding religious overtures on a, a thousand planets across this galaxy. So that when the prophet is born, the prophet is born to a Ben Gesseriot, and the prophet, who has to be a man, uh, will be controlled by the Ben Gesseriot. They're often, I think, quite easily interpreted, the Benjaseri, as these characters who are meant as reproductive vessels. And that they are there to, especially when you think about the the main thrust of Lady Jessica, Paul's mother, her role is to give birth to the daughter who will give birth to the prophet. She bucks the trend, and we'll talk more about her in a second. But it's easy to think of them as sort of these pawns being moved around a chessboard, like in medieval Europe. Um, But the Ben Gesseriot make up one of the most powerful factions in the Dune universe. Uh, They manipulate societies and powerful figures. Uh, They control things from the shadows. 
they often have a, an, an aura of mystery. Uh, they can be counselor advisors for the imperial houses and even f- for the emperor themselves. But it's also interesting when you look at the Ben Gesserit's attitude to men. Um, so in an article about uh, Dune and the deconstruction of a gendered chosen one, this is on uh, Girls on Tops. It's a really good essay. I recommend you read it. It's in the description. Um, the author talks about how the Ben Gesserit's attitude towards men is really interesting because from their view, the, the Ben Gesserit view men as livestock. Um, who have useful genes to to shape and wield their breeding program. Uh, And this is where this idea of them being reproductive vessels comes from, right? But they're using their own power. They're manipulating a a structure they they operate in to come out on top. And this person, the author, author, unfortunately it's not bylined this article, but you should read it, says that they don't want to give birth to a male Kwisatz Haderach because they view males as... Uh, superior they just find them easier to control another key thing to think about with the benchesaria is that although they take up a position in the universe as these advisors and courtesans they're actually also incredible physical specimens in terms of their athletic training their martial arts training weapons training uh, it's something that makes them feared it's a um, the whole thing is about controlling yourself, controlling your emotions, controlling the the situations around you. It's something very similar to the Jedi in Star Wars, and this is something that Girls, Girls on Top um, article talks about. It's a sort of powerful philosophy of embedded agency that this society of women has. Um, it's from the, the Ben Gesserit that we get the litany against fear, the very famous line from Dune about um, fear being the mind killer. It's also important to think about the fact that the Ben Gesserit, not Paul, not the Emperor, not Duke Leto, it's the Ben Gesserit who set the stage for the novel's entire events through the the scheming to create this prophet and and cause inevitably the, uh, the downfall of, not necessarily their society, but the reshaping of the galaxy itself. Now, it's quite easy to think of the Ben Gesserit from this position that these are women who are operating in some sort of girl bossification universe where they're in control of everything, men are stupid, men are cattle. Um, But there is an argument to be had that there is a sort of twist on this. Because the Ben Gesserit are trained in hand-to-hand combat, because they're great at telling lies, because they have mind control in the voice, um, it gives them an otherness. Uh, their life is one of holding secrets, being ostracized, and sometimes even betraying loved ones at the uh, the behest of an order that they belong to. You also have to think about the fact that needing to do everything that the, the Benjaseriot tells them to do, these women's bodies aren't even their own. They're often told when to have children. So... On a surface level, you can sort of see them as this um, powerful structure in a universe that is inherently patriarchal, but at the same time, one that still others women to the point where they are seen as, because of the power they hold and the influence they hold, that makes them scary. And the, the Benjaseri also thrive in this scenario. They don't rail against it. They're, they're, they're not trying to disrupt the... Um, the the system that they're in 
what they're actually doing is trying to subvert it and control it. They're not trying to tear it down. They're trying to create a, a profit, a male profit, to take control of the galactic empire and run it how they see fit. They spend their time, as this article in, in Bustle talks about again in the description, they devote their energies to thriving within the existing power structure, um, aiding and abetting uh, all manners of injustices and acting as the handmaidens of empire. Not very girl boss. There is one other thing that um, the Benjaseriat have that sets them apart from a lot of the factions and groups in the Dune universe, and that is the voice. And when you say that, when you say the voice, it has to be capitalized on the T and the V, and maybe even put into air quotes. Because the voice is a form of subconscious control. It's a vocal technique used only by the Benjaseriat. That means just using uh, tone, in Herbert's own words, tone shadings in the voice allows them to bend the willpower of others. And in a society that, in a, in a, in a, not in a society, <laughs> we live in a society, but in a setting where a lot of conflict is combat driven, there's a lot of political conflict, but when it comes to blows, a lot of it is driven by... Uh, vibro swords and ornithopters and lasers and shields having uh, an ability and it's worth bearing in mind that the Benjaseriat are um, exceptional fighters themselves but they don't re often rely on their physical skills they prefer doing things uh, diplomatically they only really use their physical prowess when they are under threat of death and that's something that happens to Lady Jessica in the book and uh, in the film as well. The voice can be seen as, and depending on how you view it, a distinctly uh, feminine uh, way of exerting control in terms of it, it could be seen as Herbert presenting a directly feminine way of control for these women. Um, sort of that trope of the you know, weak and, not weak and feeble woman, but, you know, that they have other means, that the, 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 the men are brutish and women are soft-spoken. It could also be argued, and it is argued, in fact, by um, Hannah Salebos in a, uh, a dissertation uh, I found submitted to, to Ghent University. Great stuff. It's in the description that uh, women in the Benjus area, instead of rejecting the subservient kind of degrading female roles that they are thrust into that of courtesans and virgin goddesses they actually find strength in them the notions of the courtesan and the virgin goddess the, the, the these things that um sometimes the benches area are depicted as can be seen as heteronormative to male desire but the women in the setting reshape those as a tool to gain control and use them as tools of female empowerment so really, the, the Benjaseriat can be seen as, on the one hand, uh, a faction who exist, as a, uh, exist within a patriarchal society, who use the tools available to them to gain power, influence, wealth, and respect in a way, even if it's fearful respect. And on the other can be seen as a section of society who are using their tools to, to thrive, but not to subvert, not to upend the system in which they live. It's like that 
um, Reginald D. Hunter sketch where he uh, joke where he talks about he hates Batman because Batman is a guy who owns a corporation and spends his free time um, beating up petty uh, street criminals rather than trying to change the system that creates petty street criminals. So uh, when you have women in these positions of power and positions of power over men, the Dune series does ask us, what if women could subdue men in combat or politically or psychologically? And how does that work? How do these women use... It's an easy thing for a writer to go down the path of women using their sexuality to entrap men and then use that entrapment to defeat them and overcome them. Um, and there are tinges of that in Dune as well. There's a, a crucial scene that involves the use of the voice. There is a scene in the book and in the film where, while escaping from the Harkonnen forces, Jessica and Paul are captured um, by agents sent by Baron Harkonnen. And they are taken on an ornithopter. And the interesting thing here is that Jessica is gagged because they understand that as a Ben Gesseriot, her voice is uh, dangerous. Also on board is a, uh, a deaf soldier. So that even if she manages to escape, um, he won't be able to be influenced by her voice. Now, unfortunately, these guards don't understand that Paul has been taught by Jessica in the ways of the voice. And even though he is untrained, during their journey, he manages to convince one of the guards to remove Jessica's gag. And she then uses the full power of her uh, Ben Gesseriot trained voice to get them to, to, uh, to fight each other. She even hints with her behaviour that she prefers the deaf guard. And... This is sometimes this is where the sexuality issue comes in because in the in the books it's sort of described that she moves her body in a way, sort of creating a a promise of sex as an exchange for freedom. And there is a discussion between the guards before this goes down uh, about how they've never, in air quotes, like had a highborn. And you know the threat of sexual violence is is a big thing in fiction that to create stakes and to denigrate uh the bad guys however some people and there's there's an article um in science fiction review about the gene universe and sexual violence by al soffer and they say that um it's here that, that that jessica utilizes the promises of sex like i said to uh to eliminate her attackers she manipulates one of the other guards into letting her go because with the promise that she would be more uh, receptive, sexually receptive to him if he did so. And here Sofa argues that the scene hints at the transformation in the power structure between men and women in Dune. Uh, they say that men rape after battles, but in, the, in this case, the concept and the Ben Gesserit's mental and physical superiority results in the death of the would-be rapists. And that Jessica's behaviour, while reversing her own death sentence actually still perpetuates the view that women are part of the spoils of war for men, since most women don't master the Ben Gesserit skills, and that in escaping, she still uses that form of sexuality uh, against her attackers. Let's talk about Beverly Herbert for a second. Beverly Herbert was Frank Herbert's wife. She was herself an aspiring writer, and met Frank while they were 
doing creative writing classes. She ended up giving up her career to raise hers and Frank's children um, and to support Frank in his own creative writing process. Although in interviews and uh, letters and also in appendices, you can see that um, she was heavily involved in the creation of Dune and that Frank discussed, in in quotes, uh, every aspect of the novels with him and that she actually did edit his work before it was sent off for for major editing. In fact, she also co-wrote Chapter House Dune, which was uh, another part of the Dune saga. And it's said that that Beverly was one of the people behind the dialogue choices and the creation process of the Ben Gesseriot. And if you think about it in this way, and I'm trying not to take anything away from Frank here, because the creation of a a faction like the Ben Gesseriot, which has has taken up a lot of um, people's minds when it comes to looking at Dune as a potentially anti- or pro-feminist piece of work... It's interesting to think that a lot of the pieces that make them so intriguing may have come from his wife. His wife, who, in fact, had to give up her career to support his. But again, we are talking the 60s here. So let's talk about Lady Jessica, because uh, Jessica is a, a key part of the Dune story. She is a concubine, mother, advisor. She becomes a military and diplomatic leader. She is, for all intents and purposes, a massive, massive part of not only Paul's life, but the life cycle of the story of Dune. It starts even before the novel starts or before the film starts, in that Jessica, she's exceptional already before the start of the novel or the film, because the first thing she does is a break from the norm. The Benjaseria have for centuries been planning the creation of the Kwisatz Haderach, and that involved Lady Jessica. She, with Duke Leto Atreides, was supposed to have a girl, and her daughter would be the woman who gave birth to the prophet. I keep saying prophet, um, Hikwizak Sadarak, they're interchangeable at this point. So already we have an act of rebellion. And because the Benjaseri are able to control the gender of the child that they give birth to, it's a conscious act of rebellion. And it's an act of rebellion that is born from love. And love is, is, is a key part of Jessica's relationship with Paul but also relationship with the book because there are two different interpretations of Jessica as a character depending if you watch the film versus if you you looked at the book. Jessica is uh, one of the most accomplished members of the Benjaseria order and her defiance in giving birth to Paul is a crucial catalyst in the narrative and it also tears her between two opposing worlds. Um, because her role as a loving mother conforms to traditional gender roles, and especially those that were extant in the 1960s. But also she is a, and I mean this in a good way, she is also an exceptional schemer and uh, an a accomplished warrior and diplomat and um, 
she, in her interactions with the Reverend Mother of the Benjaseria, it's it's not just her love for Leto that that make that pushes her to having Paul and a son. It's the fact that she also wishes to be a figure of authority, not not of authority, but a figure of import in the history of the galaxy and the history of this setting. And it's interesting, we've, we've talked about the hero's journey before on this podcast, and it's interesting that Paul's uh, call to adventure, the thing we talked about in the hero's journey thing, the thing that sets off the process, the, the, the story, the call to adventure in Dune is offered by a female mentor and not a male one. And this is really, um, this is really set out in a great uh, essay by Sophie Hall on a video librarian about the trouble with adapting Lady Jessica. Uh, she says that uh, she lays out some examples um, that really uh, de- de- demonstrate this. That Gandalf tells Bilbo Baggins that he's looking for someone to share in an adventure. Uh, Harry Potter is dropped off at the Dursleys by Dumbledore and then picked up by Hagrid. Mr. Tumnus finds the Pevensey children in Narnia. Obi-Wan Kenobi gives Luke Skywalker his lightsaber. And even even more contemporary, I guess, Robert Baratheon asks Ned Stark to become the Hand of the King. And uh, Sevi says, how fitting is it in this book that a series known for being the anti-hero's journey that the people or the person who alerts Paul to the path he has been created to take are women, not just Lady Jessica, but the Reverend Mother. If you think about the Gom Jabbar scene, where Paul has to put his hand inside the box that causes him intense pain to test his abilities. He's told of his future. The thing is, there is a difference between uh, the way that Jessica's portrayed the new films, the ones that are coming out now, and the book. Because the Jessica in the book, from my interpretation, is a woman who, although, yes, yearns for power and authority and uh, respect, also has a deep, deep love for her son and a deep love for the her son as a, as a creation between herself and Duke Letter, who... She has nothing but but real, real affection for. And unfortunately, the film changes this relationship. Um, The film sows a lot of doubt between Paul, the main character, played by Timothy Shamalamale, (laughs) and uh, Lady Jessica. And Lady Jessica, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Um, There are a lot of scenes where her loyalty is, is questioned. Um, and again, this this is uh, this is really brought up in this essay that I talked about the, the the trouble with adapting Lady Jessica in the film. Paul will, will withholds information from her and is mistrustful. Talks to Duncan Idaho about his dreams of Chani, but holds back from telling Jessica. And and yeah, it cr- creates this distance between her and Paul because her perspective being removed from the film in terms of scenes being given to other characters is fine you can you can you can forgive that but one of the things that really underpins her character in the book is removed in the film and that is her relationship with Duke Leto 
Um, as we've mentioned in, I think, episode one, and I've mentioned here, uh, Jessica is Leto's concubine, not his wife. And despite the fact Jessica is the mother of his child, and he is uh, deeply in love with her, the Duke won't marry her because he needs to form a dynastic alliance. You know, your Game of thrones your medieval, this is where the feudal politics comes in. But in the books, um, one of the, the one of the characters from the early book, one of the, the the Atreides physician, asks Jessica because he knows she's Ben Gesseria, asks her outright, "Why haven't you made the Duke marry you? As in compelled him to marry marry you?" Which she could she could do, and Jessica uh, replies to him that by motivating people and forcing them to your will. It gives you a cynical attitude towards humanity, and it degrades everything you touch. She says, if I made him marry me, then it would not be his doing. Which underlines the fact that that while Jessica wants to, maybe even needs to marry the Duke, um, she wants him to do it of his own free will. This only comes up in the film once, where um, I believe Leto, played by Oscar Isaac, says to her, uh, I should have married you, and she sort of has a blank face and doesn't really acknowledge it. But it's a real, real, uh, real platform on which the rest of the the book is set. And in fact, there is I, I, this is this uh, this podcast has been recorded before the second film comes out. But it would be quite easy to see uh, from a filmmaker's perspective that. It'd be an easy ploy to drive a wedge between uh, Paul and Jessica even further with the introduction of Chani, the uh, woman who would become Paul's concubine. Spoilers, by the way, because Paul marries the Emperor's daughter and Chani is his lover and concubine. Uh, an An easy thing to do as a writer and filmmaker would be to play into the overbearing mother trope because... In the film in particular, Jessica is afraid for Paul a lot, um, but not really afraid for him in terms of a loving mother. It's, it's a strange thing that's going It's a strange thing that's going on. The thing is, is that the, that is not a thing in the book. I mean, I, I know I'm being angry about I'm, I'm being angry about milk that hasn't been spilt yet, but it's something that's not in the book. Che- Jessica has no no problems with Chani. Uh, in fact, I think she, she says outright that she loves her and accepts her, even though she may be initially against the idea of marriage. And the, the reason she's against the idea of marriage is, is the reason why I said uh, the same reason that Leto didn't marry Jessica, and that is because they need dynastic alliances with other houses. And I think that's a problem with the film. I think, interestingly enough, the book takes a more positive approach. It frames Jessica's story through her own experiences it frames it through obviously it helps being inside her head from a perspective but it frames it through her own experiences her own will her own desires whereas in the film it denigrates a lot of that because the film wants you to live through paul there's no real maybe there will be in the second film but there's no real perspective from jessica i think that's a shame I think taking you're taking away something that was quite, I don't want to say feminist, but at least something that gave a female character empowerment and relegating it to a backstory. Something else I want to talk about with Dune is it's... There is a certain given that a book written in the 60s would have 
gay panic or uh, homophobic over or undertones. Dune has a complicated legacy, uh, especially when it comes to the only uh, queer coded character in the series being the major antagonist, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. As we talked about in the first first uh, episode, when Dune was written in the 60s, it reflected uh, environmentalist issues, it looked at com- it looked at world building, how ecology affects world structures. Uh, it raised issues about how ecosystems and natural resources play with politics and militarism and colonialism, and was, as we titled the first episode, uh, an anti-sci-fi novel in many ways. But it's not exactly a progressive one when it comes to uh, the LGBTQ community. Harkonnen, Baron Harkonnen is a caricature, even if you don't play, even if you don't think about his sexuality. Um, he is outright evil, sadistic, um, violent, psychopathic, uh, has no empathy, uh, is conniving, power hungry, and mad. However, those traits weren't enough for Herbert, who decided to also uh, make him an incestuous paedophile, and outwardly gay, the only gay character in the series. And you can't help but marry those two things together, that in the process of trying to create a character that the reader would find repulsive, Herbert decided that to make them gay would make them worse. And this is something you get in a lot of sci-fi from the mid-20th century, uh, is this idea of um, queer people being strange. I mean, <laughs> where does the you know the 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 word queer come from? But queer people being um, other, repulsive, uh, wrong in some way, just not heteronormative. Uh, there's the scene in the Forever War, one of one of my favourite science fiction novels, um, where in a war between the humanity and alien species where you must travel in light years to reach the other side, the protagonist who does two tours of duty ends up hundreds of thousands, hundreds of years. And I think by the end thousands of years ahead of when he signed up, he knew going into this, that he would be projected into the future. But when he comes back from his second tour of duty, he finds that humanity has evolved past gender in air quotes and now sees, um, heteronormative relationships as strange and relegates them to a a planet where people can procreate normally and that's where it's happily ever after actually ends up because the the hive mind gestalt consciousness of these effete lipstick wearing mascara wearing um, androgynous uh, humans decide that that's where they should be put in like a zoo and it's a real um it's a real uh 180 degree turn in the novel, and it's it's for me very similar in in Dune with Harkonnen, who without with even without disclosing his sexuality is is a is a monstrous character. He is described as grossly fat. He requires an anti gravity suspender to move around to actually hold up his flesh, um, which is another thing. Really, you have to think about you know how. Um, fiction demonizes the overweight, but that's for another, another topic, another day, another podcast. 
Um, but Herbert not only does that, he contrasts large, overweight body with the uh, young and skinny slave boys that he lusts after. Perhaps a play on power, but there are other ways to display um, corrupt power and overarching power. Um, at points in the novel, uh, the Baron um, has sexual thoughts about Paul, describing him as a sweet, having a sweet young body. Uh, he often tells his guardsmen to bring young boys to his chambers and to drug, in, in, in quotes, this is from the book, drug him well. I don't feel like wrestling. He even thinks sexual thoughts about his own nephew. Um, he notices, a uh, quote from the book, his nephew's lips and the full and pouting look of them. And it's uh, his sexual proclivities are known by his uh, contemporaries and by his uh, his surround the people who surround them he surrounds himself with because his nephew even tries to poison him by um, hiding a poison needle in the thigh of a slave boy and the way that the baron is portrayed as this hovering uh, enrobed luring and leering figure it just plays into the the tropes of of the the gay panic <laughs> you know these people are are only out for one thing, and that one thing is bad. And Quinnis is, is inescapably part of the subtext here. And um, there is a, a great essay uh, in uh, Reactor Mag by Emmett Asher Perrin, and also another one by Bessie Ewell uh, on The Companion, talking about um, contemporizing the Baron. And they talk about how even in David Lynch's 1984 film, the Baron uh, takes on another classic trope of, of sexual threat, the vampire, because in the film, um, he bathes in the blood of one of his young slaves, uh, floating grey and ominous in his suspension belt. And the vampire is another film trope associated with seduction and homoeroticism. And this isn't moved away from when you look at um, the new film. When the Harkonnens spring their trap and take Leto into custody, you were you were introduced to a scene where Duke Leto, the, uh, played by the extremely attractive Oscar Isaac, is lying naked in a chair, paralysed, unable to move, and the frame of the camera uh, slips down behind Harkonnen until his head is roughly level with um, Leto's groin, while Harkonnen gorges himself on food, making smacking his lips and making strange noises. And even then, later in the scene when Harkonnen is taking pleasure from uh, torturing Leto in his final hours, he le leans over him close to his face in a very homoerotic way, but in a negatively homoerotic way, in a, an unwelcome way, in a perver perverted way, in a, uh, yeah, a very unwelcome, it's just, it's, it's an uncomfortable scene. And it's sort of, although Villanova's taken... Uh, taken away most of the aspects of Harkonnen's perversion, you could say, it's still sort of lying there under the under the under the surface. And it would be remiss of me not to talk here about uh, Bruce, Bruce Herbert, because Bruce Herbert was um, the second son of Frank Herbert. Um, Brian Herbert being the other the other Brian Herbert being the other son who continued his father's legacy by writing a whole load of other books um but Bruce Herbert would would um grow up to be gay 
and a, um, a prominent gay photographer and activist who participated in ACT UP marches um, and lived uh, among the queer scene in San Francisco. And according to Brian, um, both Frank and Beverly were not uh, happy with their son um, living in San Francisco and taking part in this lifestyle uh, and in fact wished that he'd never chosen to do so. And um, their relationship apparently remained difficult even to the dying days of um, Beverly, who Brian said was troubled by Bruce, in quotes, exposing himself to the grave dangers in the gay community. And Frank Herbert, uh, who apparently shared similar concerns, told his son, uh, Bruce, this is, told Bruce not to visit his mother on her deathbed. Now, Bruce died of complications surrounding AIDS in an AIDS diagnosis in, in 1993. And it's kind of hard not to think about the depictions of queerness in Dune and the relationship between Frank and Bruce and Frank's own interpretations of homosexuality. And the book, Dune, never really goes out of its way to redeem characters like that. It's a very um, heteronormative book. And again, you might be sitting there thinking, well, yes, this was written in the 60s, so what can you, what can you say? But there are, I think there's a very easy, not an easy way, but there is a way to recontextualize Baron Harkonnen. And the one way which the film appears to be doing, and again, if I'm, I may be wrong, because we have a few more uh a few more episodes, well not episodes, a few more sequels of this film to come out, is to, one way it's doing it is, is to just remove it, remove, we talked about this in the last episode, Hillian and I, because we, we said that the film appears to be sanitizing things, avoiding the awkward questions that perhaps Herbert wanted to talk about. Now I'm not necessarily saying that Herbert wanted to talk about uh, homosexuality by creating an evil character who happened to be queer in fact it's not who happened to be queer really it's a character whose queerness is a major part of their character and for whom makes them so evil but i digress an easy way for to, to, to recontextualize this is just to have more queer characters in the, in the films not overtly but to make it normal in a setting thousands of years into the future well, you could probably imagine there'd be at least some people in the community. So what does Dune have to say about feminism, about gender dynamics, about uh, the LGBTQ community? Not a lot, really. I don't think Herbert wrote the Ben Gesserit with some sort of high-minded feminist goal. I think he wrote it, I think he should be given credit for writing the Ben Gesserit the way he did, whether the ideas were his or Beverly's. I don't think Herbert created the Ben Gesserit as some sort of a beacon of second wave feminism. I think he gets credit for creating a sect in society that could have easily been mixed gender or at least run from the top by men. But you have to ask the question whether he created the Ben Gesserit to be a female-only organisation and faction because he wanted to demonstrate the 
abilities that women have in the real world because he wanted to create a, a, a sector of society as a mirror to the real world in which he could demonstrate the capabilities of women, make people realize that they could take positions of power, or if we take the quickest approach, that he created the Ben Gesserit as a form of otherness, as a, a society who are exceptional because of their status as, as women and as women who are capable as women who are as powerful, as wily, but who also use the voice and their feminine wiles to ensnare men and operate from the shadows. As, as mentioned in one of the articles I talked about, this isn't a group dedicated to dismantling the patriarchal system in which they live, but utilising it to come out on top. But there is some redemption in the form of Lady Jessica, who is probably one of my favourite depictions, female depictions in mid-20th century sci-fi. She has a lot more representation than a lot of female characters in books written by Herbert's contemporaries, and is an example of a character with a, a good amount of agency. And I know I haven't talked about Chani, but there's only so much time I can put into one podcast uh, and talk into the ether without having someone here to soundboard off of. And as for Herbert's representation of queer people, his only representation of queer people, I think it's a bit unfortunate. Well, it's more than unfortunate. It's damn right insulting. But in new adaptations, including the new films, there is a chance to recontextualise characters like Baron Harkonnen, who is an evil person, but not because he's gay. So... That's it for our three-part series on Dune. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, I guess, soz. But we're going to continue making episodes this year, hopefully in a bit, of, bit more, uh, bit more, with a bit more regularity now that we're, the holidays are out of the way. We don't have a topic for the next episode, but maybe it'll be myself and Khalil. But until then, see you later. Take care, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.